Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Elkhorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. So Laura, this week's episode is called Harvard's Amy Bishop, the criminal zeitgeist. So when you look at Amy Bishop's high school graduation picture, it's a sort of typical 80s picture. You see the like the bouffant. Did you notice like the bouffant? Yeah, well, we, all, we all had that huge Oh my hair god, the, the Jordache jeans, yes. the like comb in the back pocket. Really tough to imagine though that a couple of years later, Amy would shoot and kill her own brother Seth in their Braintree home. Question is, was it an accidental shooting? The investigation was wildly bungled and subsequently covered up by the Braintree police. The murder would have stayed buried and local. However, it would resurface over two decades later when Amy Bishop shot and killed three of her colleagues over the loss of tenureship. This was a mother of four, Sarah, and a Harvard PhD. So what would drive Amy Bishop to execute three of her colleagues? This week, we have the honor of collaborating with two very special women from the Women in Crime podcast, Amy Schlossberg and Megan Sachs. Thank you, ladies, for having us on. My name is Megan Sachs. I'm a doctor of criminal justice, criminology professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University. I was also a federal probation officer back in my day. I research and I teach on topics like bail, plea bargaining, sex offender policy, and many more topics. And honored to be here, ladies. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us here. We're very excited. My name is Amy Sloshberg. I am a criminology professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University. My research focuses on wrongful convictions, education in prison, and reentry and reintegration. Women in Crime is an episodic podcast in which we focus on a different woman every time who has either been a victim, offender, sometimes both, or a female whose work in the field is significant. And each time we break the case down, but we also then, when there's a victim and offender, examine the causes of crime or victimization and focus on whether or not the criminal justice system got it right. Terrific. And now we have the pleasure of listening to your trailer. Hey, true crime listeners. Did you ever listen to a true crime podcast and felt like you're left with questions like, why did she do it? Or how could this have happened to her? Then you'll definitely want to check out our podcast, Women in Crime. I'm Amy Sloshberg. I'm Megan Sachs. My co-hosts and I are both criminologists. We've spent our entire career studying crime and both have firsthand experience working within the criminal justice system. Each episode, you'll hear a new female-focused case or topic deconstructed by experts. You'll hear the stories of these women, but you'll also learn why these crimes happened and whether or not the criminal justice system got it right or not. Crime is different for women. Come listen and learn why, as each episode, we talk women in crime all of the time. So hit pause and subscribe to Women in Crime today on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Women A-N-D Crime. As always on Ivy League Murders, we like to preface our episodes with a history of the universities we cover. Harvard University was established in 1636. Laura, that's 140 years before the American Revolution. All right, Sarah, well, before we get into Harvard's history, I think we need to talk about our history with Harvard. This is a real hometown episode for us because we actually walked through Harvard Yard twice a day to go to high school. So Harvard, I went to Harvard Square every single day. Harvard Yard was like our playground growing up. Yes. And, and it became kind of like the teenage wasteland actually for me. It, it actually <laughs> did. So a lot of these monuments have a real historical meaning, but like to I, me, I, they have more, they have much different meaning. It's like <laughs> I may have smoked my first cigarette at John Harvard's statue it, it's or, true. or, or got or, drunk. Or 
just the first feel like time on I this. wish I had some anecdote about like throwing my panties up on John Harvard's statue, which I probably did, but frankly, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> For people who don't understand, we grew up Cambridge, Massachusetts. Shout out to Anna Martin, another Cambridge friend who, who reminded me that not everybody knows where Cambridge is. Cambridge is in Massachusetts and it's pretty urban. And so when we were in growing up, most of us lived in apartments. And so. Yeah, Cambridge is very fancy pants now, but it is very neighborhoody back then. But I think even now, I think that the teenagers, you know, tend to go to Harvard Square as kind of like where they hang out. Except for recently, Laura and I went to Harvard Square. So if anybody's familiar with it, it's usually bustling. It's usually like you have to walk on one side of the, of the thing because it's so crazy and busy. And it is a ghost town. Now it's eerie yeah, because it's, of COVID. It's like yeah, all shuttered kind of shops and it's really crazy. But you can forget actually, I think that we often now so interested in the history that I didn't realize growing up I was walking in Paul Revere's steps. Absolutely. When I was, there is so much so much history in Harvard Square. And of Harvard itself. I right. Mean, speaking of the John Harvard statue, did you know that that is actually not John Harvard? Yes. I actually yeah. didn't know that until recently, which is it's a fun factoid. So, you know, so the iconic statue in Harvard Yard of John Harvard is not actually John Harvard. John Harvard was a generous benefactor when the bronze statue was created. So there wasn't an image of John Harvard to model the statue after Laura. So they used a guy named Simon Hoare, who was a descendant of one of the early presidents. And speaking of presidents, Harvard has generated eight presidents, including John Quincy Adams and JFK. Wow. But you know, Harvard has also matriculated darker graduates, including the Unabomber, which we'll cover in a later episode. Everybody's done the Unabomber, but I think Laura and I are going to take a really unique perspective on this one. So a couple of months, I'd say we'll do, we'll drop, yeah, we'll drop an episode about yeah. the Unabomber. So keep your eyes out. Today's subject is Amy Bishop. Once again, this is a true crime podcast. In this episode, we cover subjects like mass murder and violent altercations. So listener caution is advised. And fun fact is there's some famous Harvard dropouts, Sarah. Oh, yeah, let's not. You can't mention Harvard without the famous <laughs> dropouts, Laura, because I'm telling you, there's big bucks dropping out of Harvard, man. Think about it. Mark Zuckerberg, creator of Facebook. Bill Gates. Bill Gates. <laughs> okay, another Bill Gates. another one, uh, one of our classmates, another Cambridge native. Yeah, that's right. Matt Damon. Damon. Shout out to Matt, man. We went to high school we went to high with school him. With we went to pilot at CRLS. So um, go Matt. So being a Harvard dropout can, for some people, can be quite... Uh, mega. Mega. Mega, right. I'm going to get my daughter into Harvard just so she can drop out. I think that's the plan. Okay, well, okay. Hopefully, hopefully it'll work out for her. <laughs> so Amy's parents, uh, Sam and Judy Bishop, lived in Braintree, Massachusetts, which is a middle-class suburb, kind of a bedroom community, in a pleasant Victorian house with a copper beech tree in the front yard. And do you know what a copper beech is? It's a beautiful, beautiful tree. It's like, literally, the leaves are the color of copper. It's absolutely yes, beautiful. beautiful. Now, Judy, who was from Exeter, which is more of like a waspy enclave, was a force to be reckoned with. And she was a real player in the local town administration. And Sam Bishop, he came from a Greek family, and he grew up in Somerville, which is close to where we grew up. And it was much more, I would say, at that time, a working class oh, town. We, we called it Slummerville, even though now neither one of us could touch the real yeah, estate now, there. Yeah, now <laughs> it's yeah, million-dollar homes. Totally. And he was actually a noted film professor at Northeastern University which is a great university in Boston. Both the bishops uh, prized the arts and intellect and brought their children up the same way. They read literature and watched films as opposed to movies. They didn't really watch TV a lot. They welcomed their first child, Amy, in 1963 and their son, Seth, in 1965. Right. So there's three years before between right, right. the two of them, right? So both kids were high achievers, Laura. No wonder both parents were. Can you tell us a standout story? about Seth because I love this. Been retold a few times. But no, this is a great story because Seth was a 
a violin virtuoso and he was being bullied at school for having his violin and instead of like backing down and running away he just busted out the violin and started playing and he played so well that everybody started clapping it's, and he just turned the whole situation around and I think that just says a lot about Seth's character total total moxie I think right and you know Amy played violin too but she was mediocre Sort of sets the tone for this whole thing. It really, it? really does. I think even though Seth was the younger sibling, Laura, he was just kind of a tough act to follow. You know? Yeah, like, he was more the standout. He was more the standout, and I think he just, people liked him better. He just had charisma, and mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of jealousy on Amy's part. I think you're right. So in the winter of 1986, the bishops had returned from Sam's father's funeral. To find their house had been broken into. Can you imagine coming no. back? Must have just been devastating. So Sam Bishop purchased a Mossberg shotgun to protect his home from burglars. On December 8th, Amy, who had gotten into an argument with her father regarding a comment she had made. Do we know what that argument was about? No, I don't think that I don't anybody, think I don't anybody think, Yeah, and you know, I don't think the family will ever tell anyone. So I I don't know. Judy, Sam, and Seth were all out of the house. And Judy and Sam had come back. I guess Judy had been horseback riding that morning and Sam had been grocery shopping because he was a good kid. And so Sam was unloading the groceries and Judy was helping him. So Amy comes down the stairs with the Mossberg in her hand, Laura. And she allegedly asks Seth if he could help her unload the bullet from the gun. So the gun went off, Laura, hitting Seth in the chest, according to Amy and Judy. Both claim that Amy's hand was not on the trigger. I'm not a ballistics person, Laura. However, this is a strange scenario that just gets even stranger. Before Amy went downstairs, she had already discharged a bullet into one of the walls in her room. Some say the ceiling, some say the wall. The noise from a shotgun on a quiet winter afternoon would have been deafening. Yes. However, Judy claims she doesn't hear anything. Amy then tries to cover up the hole with a Band-Aid box and a pitcher. (laughs) So after Amy shoots Seth, it's really what she doesn't do, Laura, that stands out in my mind. Me too. So she doesn't check on her brother. She doesn't run to get help. No. She doesn't call 911. She doesn't call the nurse that happened to be living with them. What she does do is run to a nearby garage, Dinger Auto. She brandishes the shotgun at the men who were working there, demanding a getaway car. Strangely, the men had stolen $25,000 from a convenience store that they were hiding in the garage floor. So when she, she busts in with this gun... Right, they think they, she's, they're going to rob them. I know, what a, what a crazy coincidence. What a crazy coincidence. And they must have looked at this girl, looked kind of geeky, right. and, and been like, what the hell with is going gun, on? With a gun, right. So the guy is basically just like, take off. They just disperse. Give me a car, Amy demanded. They run away. So the police, I guess, had already been called with a report of a young woman walking through a parking lot with a gun. So one of the Braintree police confront Amy upon leaving the garage. Amy is pointing her weapon at the police officer. I mean, come on. Is that really going to happen today? Like someone's pointing? No, you'd be, it, you know, you'd be yeah, you'd you know, be shot. I, I yeah. mean, with all the crap that's been going on, why they didn't shoot her on the spot, I don't know no, why. I, yeah. It would have saved a few lives, I guess. Yeah. But pointing her weapon at a police officer, that's an immediate license to kill for a police officer. So, however, a second officer comes in and eventually Amy is disarmed and arrested. Now let's back up. So Amy had on a coat, which means she either had the coat on in the house, which seems unlikely. Like during the shooting. Right. Or she had the wherewithal to grab her coat, which shows she had her wits about her. I mean, it was December in New England. It would have been very cold. We'll never know these details because there wasn't an investigation. So there's plenty of speculation, Sarah. And some of the theories that we just don't know because there was not a thorough investigation at all. There was hardly any investigation. But the weirdness of not only the crime itself, they say it's an accidental shooting, right? But then... Here are some of the speculations about what was going on. Yeah, what are some of the theories, Sarah? So so some of the theories are this. So it was Judy Bishop, the mom, was having an affair with the chief of police, a guy named Polio. Polio was not popular with his guys, and he became even less popular after 
this whole thing went down. So keep in mind also, Judy Bishop was pretty powerful in Braintree Town Hall. Those people have a lot of say over budgets and that kind of stuff, and she was incredibly generous with the police. So they might so have swept it under the rug they, just to, yeah. They may have. And there was a guy named Delahunt, who was the Norfolk DA at the time. He points the finger to the Braintree police. Polio had basically told Delahunt to soft pedal that the shooting was accidental and it wasn't trial worthy. But there's all kinds of weird things, just mishaps along the way. Like there was a state trooper involved by the name of Howe who had interviewed Amy, but he was never told Laura that she had pointed a loaded gun at the Braintree police officer, which means the Braintree police did not tell them. I mean, how often does that happen? Yeah, that's, you know? that's insane. So in this admixture of incompetency and finger-pointing and cover-up, Seth's murder was ruled accidental. We'll circle back to this later on in the podcast, but that's when we talk about the zeitgeist, so. Well, why would Amy shoot her brother if it wasn't accidental? I mean, Seth was likable and accomplished. He also went to Northeastern. He was younger than Amy by a few years, and it was kind of like everyone loves Seth's situation. And then there's Amy, Sarah, mm -hmm. who's awkward and probably cold by everyone's accounts. Amy was both avoidant and by the same time she craved attention. I'm not a gun person, Laura, but there's a great article in The New Yorker about this case and we'll reference it in Facebook. But my understanding is that the Mossberg shotgun holds four bullets. So after a bullet is discharged, you have to rack the slide to eject the empty shell. Like, this is a deliberate two-part action, so you would know if a bullet was in the chamber. Furthermore, you have to exert five pounds of pressure on the trigger to fire the gun. See, it doesn't make sense to me. If her finger was not on the trigger, right, right. Uh, it would have had to have knocked against something. But there's no logical it, a gun will go off if it falls and let's say hits a stair right you know and that's the pressure that's point. right but hitting somebody in the chest is not consistent with a scenario like this right and sarah you actually came up with some pretty interesting theory on this which i've actually never heard before and what you know about what was going on at the time of the shooting Everybody remembers the show Dallas. Well, or not everybody. Not but everybody, but I think it actually of a certain like, age. Of a certain age, but I think it's been done on Netflix or yeah, you know, anyway. hasn't it been? This was mid '80s. This was '86. So Dallas was like, if you think about, it's not at all like Game of Thrones, Laura, but it was like the Game of Thrones. I remember watching Dallas in Ireland for God's sakes. Like everybody, everybody was watching this show. It, yeah. This was December of 1986, Seth's shooting. And Patrick Duffy, who had played Bobby Ewing on the show, he was one of the main characters. He was a good-looking guy. So he was on the cover of People magazine and the National Enquirer. He's all over the place because very shortly before this, on November 20th, both of his parents, who had owned a tavern, had been shot and killed. And the killer had gone to a nearby garage demanding a getaway car. It seems like a weirdly thin link, Laura, and I'll explore this a little bit further into the podcast, but in one of the crime scene photos, that same National Enquirer was spotted in Amy Bishop's room. Right. So just keep that in mind. Keep it in mind, yeah. and we'll tie it together a little more. I wasn't on board for this at first either, but it makes sense more as we go along. Remarkably, Sarah, there were no consequences for Amy, which is just crazy to me. Um, she finished Northeastern kind of like when they went along like nothing happened. Right. And she got engaged to James Anderson, who she met through a Dungeons and Dragons club. And who doesn't? I've met all my guys through Dungeons and Dragons, Laura. What okay, do you we probably shouldn't, you know. <laughs> I used to make fun of the guys in school who were in the D&D &D clubs and they all are like, work at IBM and like. <laughs> make a lot more money than we do. <laughs> right. I won't name any names, but there's, one of them is like counsel for Google now. Okay, okay. So, so but then, you know, Amy and Jane, like, were, but they were a perfect fit. They were. I mean, how because, they, because they were both misfits, right? You know, they kind of enabled each other, I think. Yeah, and I think that Anderson, he seems to have become, like, subsumed by Amy's stronger personality. And apparently, like, throughout their marriage, when she got into conflicts with people, which invariably happened, James would fan the flames, not quiet it. 
So Amy Bishop and James Anderson were married in August of 1989, Laura. So soon after, Amy started the PhD program at Harvard's Division of Medical Sciences, and she pursued a PhD in genetics and neuroscience. So neuroscience is a study of the nervous system. And at Harvard, I read that it's interdisciplinary. In fact, although Amy was recognized for some of the research she did, she was, according to some, a weak candidate for a doctorate. She basically squeaked by at Harvard. So that didn't stop her, Laura, from continuously dropping the infamous H-bomb, as in, I'm a Harvard PhD. It became Amy's go-to phrase. Sarah, when her temper was triggered, she would explode. Right before Christmas in 1993, Dr. Paul Rosenberg, a neurologist at Boston Children's Hospital, received a strange package. For years, the Unabomber had terrorized the nation by sending booby trap packages to various academic and corporate figures. The feds were perplexed as there seemed to be no logic as to whom the Unabomber would target. Some instinct made Rosenberg cautious. He opened the package carefully from the side and noticed wires. He backed away quickly and called the Newton police. It was a double pipe bomb. That, had Rosenberg opened, would have killed him or grievously injured him. The authorities were thinking who could have done this. However random the Unabomber was, a neurologist who treats children seemed like a stretch. But one of Rosenberg's students, to whom he had given a negative review, came to mind. She was unstable and quote-unquote on the verge of a nervous breakdown, Rosenberg had said. Her palpable anger intimidated him. That student was Amy Bishop. Although both Rosenberg and the police had their suspicions about Amy, they had no proof. Here's where I formed the opinion that Amy was tapping into what I'm calling the criminal zeitgeist around her, whether it was inspired by Hollywood-adjacent drama like the Patrick Duffy thing or domestic terrorism in the case of the Unabomber. Meanwhile, Sarah, this is like really, really weird. James and Amy continued to have children and James had trouble increasingly getting work. I mean, Amy basically supported him and mounting pressures from Amy culminated in another bizarre incident in 2002 at an IHOP restaurant when the family was waiting for a table. The server had already given away the last baby seat to another family, and Amy was enraged and yelled, and the server told her to leave. But before leaving, Amy actually went over to the other family, punched the woman in the head, said, I was here first, I'm a Harvard PhD, and she said, fuck you. Right. And Laura's too much of a lady, but I'm just going to say that she also, I guess, Laura, I'll see you next Tuesday, was the the word that Amy used. I just feel like Amy really repping the crimson there, you know. And of course, police were called, but once again, Teflon Amy was not charged with a crime. Around this time, Amy was also facing diminishing work opportunities. She had had negative reviews, Laura. She was under a lot of pressure, mostly kind of her own pressure to always prove herself. And I think a lot of people feel this way, a lot of women especially. And for Amy, she really wanted to be recognized and she wanted to be extraordinary. I think at this point, her life is just not working out the way she had envisioned. I think that's true. And I think a teaching position at the University of Alabama, Huntsville, provided Amy the chance to be a big fish in the smaller pond. And it also held the promise of a tenure track. So bedazzled were they with her Harvard credentials that UAH and the administration failed to do their due diligence on Amy's background. Had they, they would have found a checkered pass with mixed reviews and some downright negative ones. Amy's sandpaper personality had done her no favors. Nevertheless, she took the position at University of Alabama, and and things for a while seemed to be going well. Amy and James actually came up with an invention to improve the Petri dish, which promised to yield both money and recognition, as we know recognition was extremely important for Amy. In reading this book about Amy Bishop called A Professor's Rage, I couldn't help thinking, Laura, like, By this time, Amy's 40 years old. She's had four kids. She's a professor. She's written three books. She's working on inventions. I get it. I'm a doer. I'm totally type A. But like, when did this woman sleep or like play with her kids or have any fun? I feel like she was so consumed by her narcissistic need for recognition that she never really even lived her life. 
Well, I'm not sure she really did. And meanwhile, she wasn't just expected to teach Sarah, but she was also expected to publish papers and research. And some people felt she was a good professor, but other students found her abrasive and critical. And this I hate. She would always remind people that Harvard students were better and smarter. I hope I'm not like that, Lauren. Not at all. I I mean, I feel like I don't have to drop the H-bomb. You do that for me. (laughs) I I do. Well, this is Ivy League murders, so I feel like Sarah gives us a lot of cred. I'm the the mascot. (laughs) Yeah, you are. So I kind of introduce her as my Ivy League co-host, but you don't do that at all. It's kind of a joke in Cambridge. How do you know someone went to Harvard? They'll tell you. They tell you. (laughs) But you're not like that. Here's the thing. Amy needed to get tenure at UAH. Failure to achieve it would be a huge stain on her academic credentials, but there would be problems and concerns. So Amy had published an academic paper listing her family as thinly disguised co-writers. It's actually quite funny if you look at the paper. It's like P. Anderson, G. Anderson, S. Anderson, and it's all her kids. I think people increasingly had concerns about Amy, and in fact, when she wanted to go and talk to the president and the provost at UAH about her tenureship. And they found her scary enough that when she demanded to meet with them, she actually saw them being escorted out of the building by security. At this time, also, Amy was friends with a colleague named Deb Moriarty. And Amy told Moriarty that, quote unquote, they were acting like I was going to shoot them, which is very weird sort of portentous. It also makes you wonder if they were concerned about her then, how she was able to continue to be on the campus and going to staff meetings. I don't think anybody could have predicted that she would do what she would do. But in terms of the pressure of tenureship, I think let's invite Amy and Megan back into the conversation. They can speak about their experience about tenureship and the importance of gaining tenureship. And what it means to not get tenure. I think I would start by saying that if you get denied tenure, it's considered a scarlet letter in academia. I think, Megan, tell me if you agree, but I think for all intents and purposes, your career in academia is over. Typically, schools, if you don't get tenure, if you don't get tenured, you don't get promoted, which means essentially your contract ends. So if you were to go to another university or college to try to get hired, you would have to explain that. And if you are not getting tenure at one place, it's unlikely that you have the credentials to get hired at another. So your career in academia is basically over. So Amy would have had... Then again, if you get denied tenure at somewhere like Harvard, I'm sure a smaller liberal arts school would be happy to take you because depending on what level school is, if you're like a research one institution versus a research two, there's different parameters around what they would like you to do in order to get tenure. And there's tenure standards at every school are different. Some are higher, some are lower, but typically what happens is that you have someone who mentors you or someone in your department, a department chair, who takes you through the requirements so you know what they are and you're coached every year. You pretty much get a review at least once a year, maybe every other year that tells you whether or not you're meeting those standards. And so you know pretty well in advance. It never comes as a surprise. Very rarely is anyone surprised. They know because every year they are failing to meet the benchmarks of that year. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this so wouldn't not, have been shock. You know, we did a little no. piece about tenure at UAH. It does sort of seem like kind of a complicated. In other words, like the provost can co-sign it. It seems like it was a little bit more complicated at UAH. It was. Sort it's of- like that at our school too, to be honest. There's several levels. You go through two committees. You go through the dean, yeah, the provost. Yeah. It's complicated. It's not. It's complicated in that how many levels there are. But it all starts with your department and you knowing what those standards are. Right. Yeah. It's really mostly clear to know when you're meeting them or not. And I think it's almost a failure on the part of your chair if you are surprised. It was 3 p.m. on February 12, 2010, and 13 professors had gathered in a windowless conference room in the UAH Shelby Center for Science and Technology. The department chair, a plant biologist named Gopi Padilla, distributed an agenda. Amy had taught her class that morning. In interviews after, some students said that she was distracted, but others said that she seemed perfectly calm. Amy came into the meeting at Shelby Center. The other participants were a little surprised. There wasn't any reason for Amy to be there. Since she had been denied tenure and wasn't coming back in the fall, Amy sat back atypically quiet. Amy clutched a canvas bag in her lap, unknown to her colleagues. In the back was a rugger, 9mm semi-automatic handgun. This is a handgun that James had acquired a decade earlier in New Hampshire. 
As the meeting neared its conclusion, Amy suddenly stood up, pulled out the gun, and started shooting. Podia was shot first in the head, then the cell biologist, Adriel Johnson. I want to just say a brief word about Adriel Johnson. This is a man of color who pioneered a lot for people of color in the sciences. He did a lot to forward that. I had read that about him. I just wanted to say that as a side note. And as people screamed and ran for cover, Amy shot Maria Raglan Davis. She then turned toward her friend Deborah Moriarty as Deborah pled with Amy to think about her children. Amy fired point blank at her anyway. The gun jammed, giving Deborah seconds to run and barricade the door. After the shooting, Amy ran into the ladies' room where she cleaned herself up, then washed off and disposed of the gun. When she finished all this, Amy borrowed a student's phone, called her husband, and requested that he pick her up. In her wake was a gruesome scene of three dead and several injured. Gopi Padilla, Maria Raglan Davis, and Adriel Johnson were murdered in cold blood, and three more colleagues of Amy's were wounded. Amy was immediately arrested, but denied any memory of the event. Amy said, this didn't happen. The next day, Huntsville police would receive a call from the Braintree Police Department. Amy's past was finally catching up with her, but it was a tip-off that was received too late. After initially pleading not guilty to capital murder by reason of insanity, Bishop entered a guilty plea on September 11, 2012 to capital murder in a deal to avoid the death penalty after DA Rob Broussard learned several of the victim's family members opposed it. After a brief trial, she was sentenced to life without parole and sent to the Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women in Alabama. Massachusetts chose not to reopen the case of Seth's murder and pursued charges against Amy. After Bishop's arrival at Tutwiler, she got in a fight involving a dining tray, but is now living in a dormitory setting and has a medium security clearance. So I wanted to bring up this idea now of the, the zeitgeist, which is what I came up with in terms of breaking this case down. If you look at Amy's criminal history, she shoots her brother. This is emulating the crime that Patrick Duffy's parents went through in terms of asking for the getaway car. They never were able to prove her connection to the Paul Rosenberg bombing attempt, but that was really emulating, but she was a very strong suspect for that. And that was emulating the Unabomber. The Unabomber was at its height in 1993, and that's the date of the Rosenberg attempt. I was thinking about this and thinking how strange that there are these parallels that Amy seems to have picked up on and emulated. Then I was thinking that, okay, she is unusual, that she's a woman, she's an academic, and a mass shooter. That's a very distinct criminal footprint for Amy. Very unusual. And I read that in 2009, this was one year before the shooting at University of Alabama, that there were eight mass shootings in the U.S. by April of that year. And that's not including the Fort Hood mass killing, if people remember, that grabbed headlines. It's my belief that Amy Bishop was emulating these events. And if there is a zeitgeist having to do with crime, that Amy was fully engaged and picking up on this and using this. I, I think she's a criminal. So she was basically copying or emulating these crimes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. The nation was shocked and University of Alabama was shocked. The loss of three other staff members was devastating to their colleagues, to their students. To the whole community. And they've done a few things to work towards healing. They've built a memorial garden for people to go and, and remember and to, to mourn. And then another kind of cool thing they've done is they've done a, a book of art and students have submitted pieces of art and they've released that and all proceeds go towards victims and family members. So they've done quite a few things to commemorate those lost and injured on that terrible day. And we want to remember the victims. And their families. And their families. 
I'm really looking forward to speaking with Amy and Megan. So we're going to reintroduce them now. Yeah, this is exciting. And get their professional take on this. Well, because it wasn't proven in a court of law, technically it's not a crime. But Mm -hmm. if I had to venture a guess, uh, based on what I know, and especially based on the knowledge about the racking and reloading of the firearm she used, I'd say it was a crime. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. I would have to agree with that. You know, we don't have to discuss them necessarily as separate incidents, but we can discuss her violent behavior and how that the pattern and how it progressed. Tell us what you think, and we can kind of go from there. I think the copycat thing is very interesting. I didn't pick up on that when I was researching the case. And Megan, I don't know if you often see that when you study these repeat offenders. It's new to me. It's not a theory in criminology that really speaks to that. Sometimes with serial killers, you see that, you know, an emulation of someone else, a copycat, but no, I didn't pick up on it with Bishop, to be honest. So I think that's a fabulous insight by that's you guys. I didn't even pick up on it. Sarah picked up on that. By looking. No, I think that's great. That makes a lot of sense. Can we start with what, what, I mean, what would you like us to? We have a, if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll just start. <laughs> you think the shooting of her brother was really like a catalyst for the rest mm-hmm. of the violent behavior. Had that not happened, if, if she would have kind of gone yeah. in that direction or not? Well, I think it's clear that she exhibits some of the hallmark characteristics of mental illness. And I'd like to break that down in a little bit, talking about the emotional dysregulation and the interpersonal dysfunction. But it's clear that her experiences also likely contributed to her psychological and behavioral instability. And I think we could see that with her upbringing and perhaps with the situation with her brother, how she was jealous of him and how just a family dynamic. And then later, of course, with being denied tenure. And even if we go back to look at the mail bomb situation, there was some strain going on in her life at that time too. So I think what we're seeing is some underlying mental health issues that are being exacerbated by environmental circumstances. Right. Are you going to talk, Amy, about the mental illness personality disorder? Just kind of give a little bit of the difference or at least, you know, where you're going to go? So I was trying to, based on what we know, I was thinking, you know, what would she be diagnosed with from a mental health perspective? And it seems like all personality disorders are on a continuum. It's not black or white by any means. And I think we can see that a lot with cases like this. So first we look to see borderline personality disorder. Some of the characteristics Amy portrays fits in here, but usually we don't see the violence with borderline personality disorder. So we do see some of her earlier outbursts, such as the one with the IHOP that you mentioned. Outbursts like that lend itself to borderline personality disorder. It's a lot of lack of impulse control and fear of being rejected. So her having to claim, I am Dr. Amy Bishop, and that all feeds into her. She needs to be accepted and Also, she wants people to see her in a certain light. And she also has these mood swings, right, that toggle between two extremes, the love and the hate. She goes from idolizing people to being angry with them. So there's also evidence that there's these small things that can really just set off a disproportionate reaction, lead to a violent reaction. And she seemed in her life, it seems to veer wildly between moments of, you know, this fury and then moments of scientific brilliance and then moments of rage and then moments of even empathy. We see empathy at certain points, whether it's true empathy or just faking it. Obviously, we can't know that. But what I want to turn to is narcissistic personality disorder. I just wanted to agree with Amy. I think she exhibits very clear characteristics of borderline personality. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm curious, would you lean more towards that or narcissistic personality Let's see disorder? how good your explanation is okay. before I make up my mind. All right. <laughs> so when we see narcissistic personality disorder, we often see feelings of self-importance, a craving for admiration, an obsessiveness with power and success, struggles with empathy, arrogance, entitlement. I think we can check the box on almost all of them. <laughs> Sounds like it fits. Right? And also people who have narcissistic personality disorder can in fact be violent, especially when they are threatened with abandonment. Mm-hmm. So okay. not gaining tenure, that's like someone with a narcissistic personality disorder. It's the perfect storm, right? That's the catalyst for her, it seems. So if I had to say between the two, I definitely think her rejection of criticism. There was evidence that she fudged her resume. There was evidence that she would go into a rage if she wasn't given the first author slot on a paper. She was called arrogant and aloof and superior, and she saw herself as that as well. She almost seemed to be proud of that. When people, it seemed like when people called her these things, she was proud that people were, oh, people are noticing that I'm like this. I I don't know why she thought it was a good thing, but she seemed to really 
hang her hat on being this person who is arrogant and superior. You made a good case for narcissistic personality disorder. I think she fits in both, but probably MPD stronger. But I think she's a borderline as well. So I think these are definitely her two underlying personality disorders that set the stage for her behavior throughout her lifetime. Mm -hmm. Do you think there was anything about that? I mean, I'm interested in the family dynamic. How do you think the family dynamic contributed to her personality disorder? Without blaming the family, because we don't want to do that, I do believe that they contributed to her future bad behavior. In one regard, it seems like there was an incredible amount of pressure to be successful in that family. And so I think the pressure contributed. And in the second regard, the fact that her mother and father seemed to cover up her behavior and allow it and excuse it. That also is going to be, I think, a big contributor into Amy knowing, well, I can do something really horrible and it's okay if I do it, it's going to be okay. She's allowed to get away with this kind of behavior and therefore it's going to continue. And we also learn our coping mechanisms from our parents, what we're modeled and the way her parents seem so disconnected and just not affected by the death of their child especially her mother. Yes. I think her affect was very flat. Both of them. It's very curious to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course there could be a little nature and a little nurture there. So she's kind of getting it from both sides. It seems. Is that just a coping mechanism to kind of like the way they just don't talk about it and they don't address it? It seems like it. And it could also be that that's how her parents were brought up, right? It's just something that's generational, but that's just how they cope with things. And that's not a healthy way to cope with things, of course, especially the death of a family member. That would lead me to, well, Amy's covered the personality theories. I think there's also just criminological theories that are psychological and sociological in nature that help explain this. When I think of Amy Bishop, I think of anytime she has a strain or a stressor, she lashes out and commits some type of violent crime. And in our field, that's known as strain theory. So strain theory is when people experience these real stressors and the stressors are usually like failure to achieve real goals or loss of something you really like. All the triggers for Amy, people with unhealthy coping mechanisms will react with criminal or deviant or violent behavior. And so I think of her because she's got these poor coping skills and because that probably came from her family. Whenever she's strained and a real strain or stressor comes, she has a very unhealthy and irregular reaction to it. That's the first criminal. I think this is a textbook case for that theory. I think it's a textbook. So that's strain theory. Um, I'll remember it because I'll always I think of one other theory too, but if you want to jump in, but I'll give you my other theory if you like. Why don't you give me your other theory first? So the other theory that I think of is one that we call low self-control theory. And it's actually called a general theory of crime, but it's in the control group families. I think Amy Bishop had low self-control. She exhibits all the characteristics of it on that impulsive, angered behavior, self-centeredness, needing attention, needing things right away. She has all the telltale signs. And in our field, the criminologists say that low self-control is really the product of poor parenting. So it's really the product of your parent not recognizing this behavior on you earlier and correcting it before you hit a certain age. And then it's an unhealthy reaction for life. So it kind of goes into reinforcement also a little bit, right? So a lot of these theories are overlapping a little bit because when you're talking about that, I'm thinking of differential reinforcement theory and it's the way you train a dog or you raise children. It's like positive versus negative reinforcement. Right. Will the behavior continue or extinguish, right? I was just going to ask you guys a really quick question. It seems yeah. like Amy Bishop picked the perfect partner for herself with James Anderson because he was such a kind of enabler it seems like of this behavior or even a encourager in some ways I, I can't speak to their marriage I never like to think that I know anything about somebody else's relationship but what, what are your thoughts on their marriage and their dynamic I wouldn't say that I know it well enough but when I did look at it earlier the first thing I thought was she picked an enabler mm-hmm. that's exactly yeah. that is the best way I could describe it someone where she's the dominant personality and he probably feeds into that and kind of I would imagine he catered to that and it certainly didn't help but she's still going to be the dominant personality probably kind of just went along and enabled her to act like that. He also stood by her. So this is someone who's loyal to her. It's Amy's way or the highway, I think. Mm-hmm. And she kind of enables him too, because he doesn't work. Yeah. It's a different, it's yeah, definitely a mutually, uh, a mutual beneficial uh, type of enabling. I agree. So I'm kind of interested because you had, is it called a mass shooting when you, I know there's different, and I think a lot of people are confused about that. I don't really understand the distinction. Like when you, 
you go in and shoot up a room full of people. You're not a serial killer. You're a mass shooter. Is that correct? Right. I'm glad you brought that up. So I teach us in serial killing and there's a tendency. Or also intro, right? Like, I teach an intro, but I, te I really go into, go into it, it in, yeah. in serial killing. There's a tendency to lump uh, serial murder and mass murder together because people don't understand the difference. But serial killing is a number of murders that happen over a period of time with a cooling off period, usually one victim at a time. It's a long progressive event. Whereas a mass murder is typically a one-time event where a number, three or more people are killed in one incident or let's say two incidents that occur very closely together. So Amy Bishop is a mass murderer. And do you want to talk about how this is different from a spree killing too? Because, Go ahead. Okay, because this one always confuses people, myself included, before okay. I knew it. So a spree killing takes it a step further and a spree killing is there's no cooling off period, which is why it's not a serial killing. However, it's not all in one location. So if you remember the DC sniper um, shootings, yeah, that's, that's a spree killer because it continued on. There was no cool down time. It also was in different locations. And a mass shooting is either in one location or very close proximity. By that standard, she fits in the category of mass murderer. Yeah. While she fits in that category, I should just tell you, she is very atypical of the profile of most of the mass shooters in the United States. Most are young males, 18 to 30. I mean, she's different just in the fact alone that she was older and she was a female. Most have a history of stockpiling weapons. So they did have weapons. So she does, I don't know if stockpiling is the way I would look at it there. The way she does fit in this category is that most of them have documented mental illness or a history of using psychotropic drugs. So I don't know that she ever took any medications, but I would say we can semi-look at her as mental illness. So she kind of half fits the profile, but the fact that she was an older female makes her very atypical in this group. She was the first academic in U.S. history to be accused of gunning down fellow professors. There was a Canadian one, I believe, yeah. that was an academic one. But yeah. U.S. Yeah. history, so. A lot of mass killers are suicidal at the time, and there's like a suicide element to that. Or they at least go in not, you know, suicide by cop, you would say, right? Yeah, suicide. They don't expect an exit plan. They don't expect an escape. Yeah. So yeah, I'd say she's also atypical in that regard. But she doesn't fit. A lot of your mass murderers aren't also the narcissistic mold that Amy Bishop was. And narcissists typically don't self-harm. So that makes sense that she didn't, but um, it doesn't fit uh, mass okay. murderers. What about her very vehement denials right after the fact saying, no, this didn't happen. They're still alive. Do you think that's at all sort of credible or... She was gearing up for an insanity defense. She's not stupid. That's what I would think. Were you going to say the same thing? If I had to guess, I would say faking it, gearing up for insanity. Yeah. Interesting. So you think she's that cunning that she would already be... Oh, for sure. Yep. Absolutely. Wow. She didn't kill herself, so there's got to be some after plan here. Good. Right. Okay. She's really... I mean, she's a pretty interesting case study as a woman. She oh, yeah. kind of defies everything. She definitely does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she does. You know what I found interesting, too, that the three colleagues that she killed were of color. I thought that was kind of interesting. I didn't catch that. That's interesting. The only thing I did read was that the colleagues that she wasn't necessarily targeting those who denied her the tenure, apparently. Right. Tenure. So apparently she was able to find out who, because they have committees and people vote for right. or against. Yeah. And I don't know if there's truth to that, but it didn't seem like she was targeting those that voted against her. True. I thought that was interesting, too. But she's sitting in this conference room with people who are going on without her that next fall. You guys spoke to the trigger. That's the feeling of being abandoned, right? You're at the meeting. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's her stressor. That's, you know, that's the strain right there for her. Yeah, because she even went after a woman who supported her. That's right. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah her kind of well, she might have even felt, if I had to speculate, she might have even felt more betrayed by her because they were friends and mm -hmm. you know what I mean I, I can't speculate on that so much but I also wonder if she carried any guilt from what happened with her brother if there was some remorse or guilt that kind of fueled her later actions I, I think probably not but I guess one could make that argument You'd almost hope there was some guilt because she seems pretty remorseless about it. Because we're Ivy League murders, we try to kind of delve into, we actually looked at Greek mythology and found <laughs> there was actually a woman, her name is Penthesilia, and she was like the queen of the Amazons. 
and she went insane after causing the death of her sister in a hunting accident and put her on the trail of bloody career of murder basically so she's possible yeah so she so penthesilia reminds me of of amy bishop can we glean anything more from you guys you guys have been terrific i mean i think those are our our major insights into her behavior thank you guys so much we want to remind everyone because i've personally been binging on your show i was listening to your show today oh thank you i'm so hooked on your show thank you fascinates me and i the way your narrative and everything it's just so well done thank you so much it's been wonderful like absolutely this is an honor yeah yes to talk to you guys because i've been really curious about amy bishop just from a sort of psychological point of view yeah yeah. it's a good case for us you know women in crime so (laughs) it was really good a lot of new insight into her so thank you thank you you very much for taking time out of your day to to be with us today oh it was a pleasure it was really fun talking with you guys fun talking to you too you too thank you this was really great i hope we can do it again in the future oh for sure absolutely we're we're women (laughs) that was fascinating that was fascinating it was really fascinating to get their their academic and professional opinion on amy because i've studied amy so extensively also really interesting to find out the difference between a serial killer a spree killer and a mass murderer mass murderer and amy was a mass murderer amy was i actually didn't know the difference between a spree killer and a mass murderer I didn't either. Yeah, actually. that's that's super interesting. Yeah. There are a lot of insights into Amy Bishop. I mean, she really was a very complicated person, and well, she still is. She's and still alive in prison. She is, and I just wanted to end with this. So, in in a very strange turn, Amy's son was born the same day as her brother Seth, and guess what? She named him of all the babies' boys' names. She named him Seth. Yeah, well, I don't know if that's sad or, or, or nice. I'm not quite sure if that's a tribute or not. But thank you, everyone, for listening to us for another week. We leave you thinking about Amy Bishop and a lot of thoughts from Meg and Amy. And um, you'll hear from us again next week on Ivy League Murders. Murder, murder, murder.